0: All right. Well, welcome, Joe. Man, thank you so much for coming in. Ah, Good to be here, man. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. You kind of made some pretty serious waves out there with this recent project, huh?
1: Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, we was basically just working through over Christmas and uh, uh, since about September. And then uh, we finished it up just before GDC. Wow. It's amazing. I remember I
0: saw that and I was just like, "Oh my god, this is so much validation for what I believe for real-time art." I guess is what you might say. A huge validator. So much potential.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things that you just don't see it every day, right? Just so much attention to detail and in real time. And I think that's sort of like a yeah, it's a different approach to what people are used to seeing because now we've got this access to all the photogrammetry stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we've got such a powerful game engine that uh, you can just throw polygons in there and uh, it doesn't really mind, you know, it doesn't really matter anymore. You've got so much to work with and, uh, you know, combine that with all the shader stuff and, well, you know, we we'll get into that later, but yeah, it's amazing. I'm totally addicted to Unreal right now, if you can't tell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me. You have a whole company kind of built around tools for that to some extent, yeah? Yeah, pretty much. I started about a year or a no, year and a half ago, sort of coming up with, Various tools for Unreal pretty Mm much focused around sort of shaders and sort of procedural generation of environments, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, started producing or attempting to produce sort of uh, biomes for every single, you know, different earth biome that you could think of, right? So like grasslands, deserts, mountains, and all of these kind of generic places that you just see all the time in games. And you think, well, why are we rebuilding this from scratch every single time? Wouldn't it be great if we could just have this? sort of resource where everything's already kind of built in some way and then people can just go in and kind of grab what they need and kind of reverse engineer it and tinker with it yeah that makes a lot of sense in
0: fact i was talking to somebody that was mentioning at avengers on on uh, the avengers game Mm. and they you oh we were talking about photogrammetry, that's what we were talking about, and uh, whether yeah. or not photogrammetry was still a big part of games in the pipeline, and they're like it's too hard to send people out there, so if you have your own if you're at your studio and you have a team that's you know multidisciplinary you know environment arts does a lot, and then you send some people out to go get photographs, you do it all, and then somebody screwed up on one camera and now every oh, you, know, yeah. you know, and then it's all screwed up, so they on Avengers, they just were using mega scans, that
1: was it, yeah. So much Yeah, easier. and that's that's something Quixel of just. I mean, they are just absolutely way ahead of the game in terms of the quality of the assets, in terms of the kind of places that they can go out and scan, and mm-hmm. they've got this pipeline and infrastructure that is just so it's so far ahead of the curve for most projects. It's literally just a no-brainer, you know, just going in and and going getting a Megascans subscription and just importing the stuff. And there are some, some steps you need to take, of course, to make it sort of game ready. But in general, I think they're moving in just the perfect direction. That's great. And yeah, one of my students actually got hired over
0: there at Quixel doing vegetation. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's,
1: that's a, that's actually a big thing, you know, just getting the foliage side of things developed. I think that's something that's going to be really interesting to see, like, all, you know, various companies, like, what they do for foliage in the future. Because it's, it's kind of like, that's the the really, really hard part, actually. Terrains, we can kind of do, where we can scan rocks, we can scan all that kind of stuff. But foliage is one of those things that just takes so much effort to manually produce. Uh, and it's a lot of, you know, even with scans, it's just a lot of working by eye to make really any good results. What are some of the challenges? Yeah, so the, pretty much the issue is that you can scan, so you could scan like a tree trunk, right? Right. And you'll get your tree trunk and then it, it'll look reasonably good up close. And then, you know, you you need to, but then you need to actually scan like all of the rest of the complexity of the branching structure of the tree. And that's usually something that in the past, what we would have done would just, we'd generate that. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at, to actually produce a full tree in 3D that looks photorealistic, you're looking at something that's half procedural and half photorealistic photogrammetry. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. It's that merging those two isn't something that's really been done yet in a very, you know, in, in an automated way. It's mm-hmm. always been sort of painstaking manual production. And uh, that's something that's super, it's like, it's just slowing development down and making it really, really difficult to produce games. I think some of the best adva- uh, or the best examples I've seen in the industry, obviously Quixel's, you know, very high up there, but I think Crytek's stuff is still really, really good, especially the stuff they did for Hunt with the swamp, uh, sort of swamp biome, you know, because they are just manually producing everything with like very, very close attention to detail mm-hmm. and working in a sort of like, a very kind of like systematic artistic way where it's like we need to make this tree look exactly like the real thing this is the reference we're going to make it look like that and it has to look like that in a modular way from all angles so i think what those guys are doing is is crazy you know when i was working there i was thinking like man i got so super inspired by the way that they design environments and the just the the level of quality that they can put out and i think still to this day like probably some of the best foliage guys in the world are still working there, like Tom Deerberg, and those guys have got some crazy some crazy, great ideas when it comes mm-hmm. to that kind of stuff as well, and great pipeline and processing.
0: So it's not just Speedtree, and Speedtree's got a photogrammetry kind of component,
1: but it's more than that. Yeah, exactly. So I think they're they're kind of merging the two things together and trying to go for that procedural stuff, but it's still not to this point where it's just like a click of a button. You know and if you look at games like Hunt, where you've had this kind of manual labor put into it and just, you know, real care and attention to detail. It's like, there's still a big difference between the quality of that compared to something that's just like generated in, in speed tree, you know, automated. Got it. That's
0: actually a question that I think's kind of relevant for environment artists. And there's a lot more I want to talk to you and I want to get back. I want to get into your schooling and your background and you're an entrepreneur. And I want to, I want to make sure I dive into that, but it, it's, um it's great for us to kind of start here because environment arts to me is this, like it's it's probably the most dynamic thing going on in games right now. Animation tools are animation tools, mocap, whatever you know. That's whatever. Even sculpting and character work is relatively consistent. ZBrush made its waves a while back, but it, in environments like there's new jobs popping up. You know, material artist was a job that did not exist a decade ago per se. Yeah.
1: Was, yeah. Now, Sub- now it's- substance. Yeah,
0: substance really changed the game there. Yeah. And that's not a, that's not a small job. I mean, that could be a six figure job for somebody, you know, Mm it can be pretty good if you work it. So the question I got is as we go through with these tools and people who let's say, you know, I'm coming a lot from the student perspective, there's this manual versus automatic Mm -hmm. approach. And in there is this question that I want to just kind of tackle right away, which is where's the art when this becomes more automatic?
1: I think, if you look at general shapes and composition, I usually try and get as far as I can with some sort of automated process. And then if you look at, you know, want to take it further, you then like go into the details and see well, what can I now replace with, like photogrammetry? What could I now replace with? You know, is this rock really good enough? Will it hold up photorealistically? Is this grass scatter effect actually enough? Like, is it okay to have this simple blend? Can I get away with that? Or would it be better if I actually baked an entire. It, texture into that or found a texture that already looks good you know from real life that i can kind of slap over that and um it really depends on the situation and that's why it's so hard to program that into a computer because as an artist you're looking at every situation in a unique way and you're thinking well what works for this situation what makes snow look like snow what makes desert look like desert and you know grass look like grass it's so tricky to kind of dissect the environments and dissect different parts of those environments to see just, you know, what amount of detail do you actually need? I think, though, the the interesting thing is that I'm leaning more towards the scanned approach now, thinking that mainly I would try to get as far as I can using scanned assets and then taking those scanned assets and assembling scenes with those and working that way. And that's just because you can save so much time and effort than trying to sort of procedurally generate stuff in substance. So for individual textures and assets, I'm leaning towards more like scans. For overall terrains, however, though, I would more lean towards some sort of procedural scattering approach simply because building all of those massive worlds, when a world gets so big, trying to do it all by hand becomes, you need you need every, every help you can get pretty much to place mm-hmm. all of these rocks, to place all these trees and have them flow with the terrain and follow sort of er- erosion patterns and that kind of stuff. That's
0: interesting. So the process is what becomes really important. And I guess what I'm trying to get right out of the way is the whole John Henry mentality. You know, the American story of the guy who tries to beat a, a railroad tie lane machine. So there's a tendency in students to feel like they need to produce everything themselves. But mm-hmm. everybody I interview is talking about the word assemble. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I that's something that gets missed.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at what I'm trying to do with Brushify, I'm really like facing an uphill battle. And I think I've, the only reason why I'm willing to do that is because I've had many, many years of building environments myself. So mm-hmm. a Brushify is 100% my thing. It's not mega scans. It's not anyone else's assets. Like this is all my stuff, and that's why what I'm most proud about. Actually, it's pretty much stuff I've taken from, you know, it's, it's either CC zero textures that I've kind of reworked and then remade and then, or, or, you know, gone out and photographed myself, photogrammetry I've done myself, and then built that into some sort of coherent environment. As one person, it's really difficult to do that. And that's, that's something that's like, well, you know, the, re- the reward that you get for that is the ability to then be able to sell it, right? But if you're working at a studio and you just want to get an environment made, by all means, just use Megascans. You know, I wouldn't be doing that this way unless I had a purpose. And the sort of purpose for Brushify is to kind of build onto Unreal Engine this really useful environment toolkit and means to kind of learn the engine. Hmm, That's a really good point, a, a way to learn the engine.
0: And along those lines, I've been teaching environment arts for a while, but in hmm. environment arts, I mean, it's a huge world. So the first thing we do is we focus on props, and then we focus on dioramas. And we're just trying to develop like what we would consider minimally viable products that make somebody a job candidate. But well, when we like get a into,
1: episode.
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, you, simple way to say it. <laughs> what is it that an environment artist needs to know? Like from your perspective or actually, I mean,
1: do you see yourself as an environment artist? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. Cause I, I've worn a lot of hats over the years. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I started this in, I, get, I mean, I was even like 14 when I first started tinkering with 3d stuff. So it's mm-hmm. been pretty much just a whole, my whole life doing stuff. But I started officially in the industry in 2009, working for Crytek as I was a cinematic intern. So started off kind of with the job description of like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to try and make some cinematics for Crytek as an intern. And they were, of course, when I came in, they were just not expecting, you know, that I'd be able to even do anything because it's just like this 18 year old kid coming down and sitting in the chair and like, oh, you're a big boy now, you know, make a shot. But they literally threw me in the deep end and just said like, okay, you're going to be building cinematic shots for Crysis. And we're going to give you like six shots on like the intro to (laughs) the game. And I was like, okay, (laughs) you know, it's like after a few months, I was like, oh, wow. Well, now I'm like working on the on crisis too. And it's, it's like, it felt crazy. I couldn't believe how much responsibility they actually gave me at the time because I could have completely messed it up, but that was it. You know, I didn't. And I guess a lot of that's down to just pure pressure. And that's the kind of pressure that you get in a studio, right? It's like, there's a deadline. We have to work our asses off for the next six weeks and we have mm-hmm. to make that deadline and we have to make sure that what ends up on that disc that gets shipped that you know ea approves it makes it past a submission and uh yeah it's pretty much do or die at that point right yeah but yeah as it and cinematics is one of those fields where that there are just so many different parts of that job because you've got sort of like the set dressing aspect where you're building environments and then you're trying to film those so all the stuff that goes into set dressing and then you've got the lighting and then you've got the camera and then you got the post-production, you know, post-processing, color grading, editing. And in some cases, you're even doing like sort of pre viz or, you know, what we would call it pitch viz where, you know, you want to show something to a director and say like, hey, this is something I've got. It's a cool idea. And you want to make a movie in like two or three days. And then you've got to do all the audio yourself and all the editing. And then you present it to the director or producer or whatever. And he says, uh, oh, this is what we want or it's not what we want, whatever. Or I want it like this, but with, you know... More dragons or something, you know. Um, <laughs> more but, dragonness, yeah. please.
0: More dragonness. Like more, more dragons. in this. <laughs> yes, love it. More so I love that pitch, viz. Yeah. So eighteen, your first job.
1: That's yeah, it was crazy.
0: Amazing.
1: Yeah, I had moved oh. move country as well. It was really annoying.
0: What at eighteen?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was in Sheffield. That's where I grew up. It's my hometown, and then moved to Frankfurt. And uh, yeah, I pretty much just got like I think the word is shanghaied. Yeah, you know where you just stay in a country forever and then you can't get out but yeah, yeah. pretty much lost in germany now so i don't know <laughs> if i'll move anytime soon but yeah we'll see what were your parents thinking oh well, they thought i was crazy until i actually got the job offer then they were like oh it's actually the best thing he can do because the problem problem i had is i wasn't really that great academically and stuff my my grades were pretty abysmal at the end because i just i was spending all of my time working on 3d stuff up until five in the morning, every night. And uh, they couldn't get me off the computer. And my mom would just come in and she'd just yell at me. She'd be like, Joe, this is crazy. You're wasting your life. You're like a zombie attached to the computer. So it kind of worked out in the end, but those were some rough years, actually. Not great. I wouldn't say it would be a great idea to go that obsessive into it. And I, I don't actually understand why I did that because I had a lot of like, like I didn't have a backup plan or something. You know, there was no like, it's going to be okay in the end. It was like, I actually didn't have a clue what I was going to do. So luckily when Crytek kind of offered an internship and said like, we like the stuff you did on the forums, it was like a lifeline actually.
0: What do you think you'd be doing if that didn't happen?
1: You think about Uh, it? I'd be mercenary or something. (laughs) (laughs) 3D mercenary? No, no, no. No, a real one that kills people.
0: (laughs) Great. (laughs) Great.
1: No, no. I, I don't know what I'd do. I like journalism, but that's it. You know, you have to actually be able to you know do stuff in the real world there's a couple of things here because i
0: don't think you're alone in that story either in my my Mm. students the people i know and and then i mean it's my nephews going through that as well they cannot Mm. get him off that computer yeah and my brother was like i think they actually like there was there was a lot of drama anyways Mm -hmm. he's now staying at his mom's and his dad and you know, my brother was like, you know, this guy, I don't understand him. He's got no work ethic. He's got none of this stuff. And then he comes and he stays with me for a week on his way to his mom. And I'm like, No work ethic. What the hell are you guys talking about? This guy works like, you know, yeah. ten to twelve hours a day. It's just you don't understand the work he's doing. Yeah. He's this working.
1: is it. It's it's a whole new field, right? It's it's difficult for people to understand And My parents didn't understand it. They just saw it as like, Oh, he's playing no video games again. And yeah. it was only until I sort of like showed them the artwork, showed them the videos. And then, you know, they still didn't really get it. They looked at the stuff and they were like, oh, very good. It's like, uh, <laughs> we'll we'll frame that for you, you know, also, you know, well <laughs> done, little, little Joe. But they didn't get like, oh, that it's actually something cool that could be in some way commercially viable or could, could lead to a job. Mm-hmm. No, it's just a different mentality, different way of thinking.
0: So what's going through your mind when... Your mom's yelling at you. Your dad's probably expressing some form of disappointment. You know, my dad expressed some form of disappointment in my choices as an artist. What's going through your mind that keeps you on this? Are you
1: just in full on mercenary rebel mode or what's going on? See, that's the crazy thing is like, I don't really remember, but I remember the situation was so bad, but I don't remember like why. I, I guess I just had this single mindedness that was just this pure. Single-mindedness that there was no other there was no other way that I wanted to go through life. You know, when you actually think about making a decision, like there are decisions in life that I sort of ponder over. You know, the big ones, like, do I like this girl? Do I not like her? Am I mean, I'm gonna, I'm doing this or am I doing that? Am I going to change jobs? Am I quit jobs? Am I going to? Am I going to start a business? Is Is am I going to actually do this because it's really you know tough? And those are big decisions that you want to make. But the weird thing is that I think that. Those decisions are getting bigger and bigger the older I get, and I'm finding them harder to make. Whereas mm. when I was young, I found them relatively easy to make. It was almost like I didn't have a care in the world. And I think that's because I was young. I almost didn't have anything to lose. I didn't have anything to lose because what else is there when you're that age? You don't even understand or have a concept of time. Like you don't understand how years pass because you haven't had many years yet. And I think once you get older, it's sort of like you've got this kind of. You start thinking, you know, there's all these things that you can lose. It's like your reputation, your, your money, your, you know, all of these things, your relationships. And then that kind of, it can stagnate you, actually.
0: Tell me about that, actually. I had a similar experience myself because I got super lucky. I got a great job right out of going to school. I worked for Pixologic. Pixelogic became like this huge company. You know, they did what Substance is doing now. They did yeah. 10 years ago Crazy. in terms of revolutionized things. But it got to a point where it was like, I can't. Put anything online because anything I put online is just an opportunity to take me down. Does that make mm. sense? You know, it's an so, opportunity to not live up to the expectation. So it's that like like you're you were kind of worried about the high bar that you set for yourself,
1: and and the, the I this had this. Standard.
0: Yeah, and I had this, pers- you know, this persona now, you know, because mm-hmm. at Pixelogic, they'd crafted this persona, Brian. And, and it's like, yeah. now you, Joe, you have Brushify. You ha- So can you just post work online? Do you have to be careful? Do you have to rethink? Does the inner critic come out?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I guess the problem is that if you get this fear factor of like, oh, what mm-hmm. if this artwork isn't good enough and everybody's going to comment and they're all going to say it's bad. And it's like, you should do this and you should do that. But it's like, well. I'd rather post something and then people just say oh this isn't very good and you know give me the feedback than have the fear of posting it at all. And I know that it's you know my artwork's not perfect. I don't think anyone can say this is a perfect piece of work or something like that. And I know that some artwork's going to be more perfect than others. You know the stuff that I did for Rebirth of course it's going to look better probably than some of the screenshots I'm building for Rushify and that's because there's just way more time and effort that's gone into these individual shots to make them look so much better, right? Mm-hmm. They're all using cutting edge photogrammetry. They're, you know, the tools that we're using there are just, you know, really just way more time and effort. All the stuff that generated in Houdini and yeah, it's, it's leagues different, but at the same time, it's like, well, it's a slightly different purpose. You know, one is a pack that people want to buy to sort of learn Unreal Engine, get a feel for how it works. And, uh, you know, maybe build some MMO game in real time or action game or first-person shooter, RPG, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the other is more like a very, very, very high-end sort of film project almost, you know, cinematic film project. that's kind of like pushing the engine to its boundaries. And, um, yeah, it's different things, really. How did Rebirth get started? How, did they approach you with this idea? Or Yeah, so they, they pretty much came with, like, this crazy... It started off like, it was like an email from Teddy, the CEO. And uh, Teddy's amazing. He's one of these sort of visionary people that you just, when they describe something, it's like, wow, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be good. Whatever happens, whatever ends up being the result of this project, this is going to be good. And, you know, it starts off like this crazy email where it's just like, we're going to build all of Iceland. (laughs) And I'm just there like, okay, (laughs) like we're going to procedurally create the entire of Iceland. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God. Okay. I just thought, let's just do it, you know, we got stuck in. Of course, the scope, you know, massively gets lowered, you know, as the project goes. But um, in terms of what we achieved, I think it's sort of, you know, it's still one of those mind-blowing things. Even if you can take a very small, it's kind of, kind of cross-section of a real, a realistic scene and, uh, you know, kind of perfectly showcase that. That was kind of what it ended up being in the end. Did you know Teddy from before? or was That, just uh, no, that, was, the, that was the first time talking with him. I think that was in... I think September last year. So that makes me think of something because Crytek reaches out to you. Teddy's reaching out to you. What do you do that helps attract people to you? I guess back in the very old days, in 2008, 2007, 2008, there was a forum called CryMod, which was basically the CryModding forum for... It was was like a modding forum for CryEngine. So for Far Cry and for Crysis, they had that kind of CryMod website. And I was like a teenager still, just you know, posted the work on there, and then I joined a modding team, and that was what I was spending all my nights doing, you know, at five a.m. whatever, to, you know, basically making my parents really annoyed at me. Mm-hmm. And um, but that was the good thing was that once you get onto a modding team, of course they maybe have a bunch of assets, so they had some characters built, they had some environment pieces built, and so back then I wasn't really like a great 3D artist that could build all these environment, you know, assets myself. So what I was doing was just like assembling scenes. Making the really, you know, trying to make really nice screenshots and then posting them up on the forums. And that was really the thing. It was like, I kind of got known as the screenshot guy. So being the sort of screenshot dude was something that people like. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, wow, these are some nice shots here. Maybe he has some talent for doing, you know, doing some cinematics or something. And that kind of got me my foot in the door that first time. Yeah. And then I guess I've just always kind of stuck with that method of just kind of create some, some promotional pieces. I think the ones that kind of look nice and then kind of just making sure that they have some visibility. And I guess that's down to a bit like consistently posting stuff. Yeah. Even if it's not the most amazing, you know? Got it. Where do you post? I'm always posting to ArtStation, but that's more of a recent thing. So back in the day, it was more like forums. And then for actually about, I guess, five years or so, I wasn't posting that much online. And I was kind of just focused on working at Crytek and building some knowledge, working on the projects there. And it, I think that's interesting because it's a double edged sword. Because on the one hand, you learn so much from working with people at a game studio, especially somewhere like Crytek, where the focus is all like, it's all on super high end CG. You know, it's super high end 3D graphics. And like the guys who've been doing that have been, you know, basically just like spending their entire lives perfecting photorealism since like Crisis One, where, you know, it was that first, it was like one of the first games where people were, were like, wow, this is, we're getting there. You know, 3D graphics might actually be, you know, in real time, we might actually be able to achieve photorealism in a game. And I think if you look at games nowadays, they still kind of, I mean, they've improved a little bit, but I still think like that crisis one level is still like a bar, a quality bar that kind of like goes in history. Mm -hmm. But yeah, spending sort of five years with those guys, looking at all the projects they were doing, working on and off with them. Because I was in the cinematic team, I was kind of able to like dip in and out of different projects and, you know, see like when the new techniques were coming in and how different people were working and that kind of stuff. The future of
0: real time, like you guys have pushed it. And as you're talking, it makes me think about something because you were saying now, um, Crisis 2 is kind of the, you know, is a benchmark for realism.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd say like Crisis 1 more than Crisis 2 or 3. I think, I mean, I'd like to say like, oh, the Crisis games I worked on were the best ones. But in my opinion, it was still the first one was the best one. And I think it looked the best and it was the benchmark. The sequels were, you know, I mean, I don't want to go crazy with, like, you know, hating on them or something, but, like, I I still don't think that they sort of matched up to the original exactly. But, you know, there's a lot of, like, different opinions about that, right? Sure.
0: But as the technology gets older and uh, as new things come up, you know, work gets better, right? Like, there was this thread uh, some of my students were bringing up about somebody had asked online, you know, for everybody to post their junior level work. You know those who have a job post your junior, and then there was a bunch of seniors in there. Guys that have been in the industry ten years, going like that's your freaking junior work. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this is a this is a pretty damn good work for junior. And then everybody's like, oh my yeah. god, this is the level and all of that. And so my students got worried, and I and I was just like, guys, remember, it's not like you know people are just drinking better Kool Aid. The tools are better.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing as well. You you know, you can just go onto Megascans and you can download a photorealistic rock and you can take a screenshot of it and you'd be like, I'm an environment artist, <laughs> you know, but it's not, you know, it's like, yeah, technically, I mean, and I'm I'm the least person that could say that because that's literally what I've been doing for the last eight months. But there's a certain level of quality that you can push it really, really far and achieve photorealism. But, and you still need to have the eye for it. You still need to understand what you're doing. You still need to understand lighting and composition. And you still need to be able to balance the lighting in a way. But it's true that you can of course be a kind of amateur and you can grab you know some really high-end assets and you can take screenshots of them and they'll look pretty good and uh you might even fool some people into thinking you're this incredible artist and that for me that's a bit where the like um you know the imposter syndrome comes in because i'm like yeah. oh you know, okay i didn't build this rock it was made by nature and yeah. you know the thousands of processing hours and dedication and massive team effort that has built Quixel's incredible pipeline and kudos to them that's the thing is they've done pretty much like the hard work so that we don't have to
0: which is great so what do we do what's the job now if somebody's coming in let's say imagine they're an environment artist they're starting today if mm-hmm. they're an environment artist they were starting five years ago it was clear you make assets mm-hmm. it's just you're not you're not making a character right you're making oh what is it somebody once said to me, you make everything that's not a character I made <laughs> you know, is, is the way they define the environment artist. And I was like, okay, I get that. Five years ago, you made everything. Today, I mean, they've got talks in GDC now where they're like, no, we don't make things. We just go to make a scan. So what does an environment artist do? And how do I position myself? I don't want to do character. I don't want to do mm. VFX. I love environment. What do I focus on
1: now? I think there are two things that are, that are really important. The first would be your core arts, art skills that stuff composition lighting set dressing understanding how to look at a reference and copy it so that's like art the art side of things because that's the side that a computer right now at least for now hasn't been able to replace scanning can't replace it we haven't developed ai sophisticated enough to do all that stuff for us so that stuff is pretty much protected in terms of it's a job the second thing would be having some sort of business goal or idea and it means like having an actual goal or a vision for how you see, you know how you see somebody using a product and using that in the future mm. so my thing with brushify was is just to have this goal of creating all of these different biomes and having a sort of tutorial system and learning system an easy way for people to get into unreal engine a place where all of the stuff all the materials all the shaders all that stuff you don't want to have to do when you first download the engine is already done for you and it's literally just something like you know you buy it from the store and you click add to project and it's all set up you know and I think not many other there are some uh, asset companies on marketplace but there aren't that many that are just kind of like this holistic product where everything's kind of just it's always in the same material infrastructure and uh, it's pretty reliable and robust you know so that's been kind of like what I see as my goal in the future is like working towards that path and uh, making it so that yeah you can. Build stuff faster. And that makes me think of like one of the things that they
0: say, I've done a lot of business classes research. I've been, you know, doing this for about twelve years now, 10 years. And one of the things they say is if you're gonna have a if you're gonna have a business and you don't want to be poor and you wanna be able to help it grow, you gotta be valuable. You just gotta make sure that you're putting value out there. And that's kind of where this question's going in my mind. So I'm I'm glad you answered like that. Because the big thing with my students is You know, I try to get them out of the artiste hat. You know, yeah, Mm. I I agree. They have to have core skills, but I want to also activate the entrepreneur in them. How can they be valuable to the industry? Because you could spend decades trying to be an artiste and master everything and all that stuff, and then the freaking software changes, and you got to update all that stuff again. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and then then some punk comes along and he's done everything with Megascans, and and you've been spending all your time (laughs) trying to build it all in Substance (laughs) Designer, you know, and it's like ah. I've made this photorealistic pebble, uh, procedural <laughs> pebble tiling you know, in Substance Designer. And you spend like five years on it and it looks perfect and photoreal. And then some kid just comes along with the scan and he's like, I did that in five minutes. <laughs> and, and, You've it's got terrible. that email. You've got that email, I think, right? No, or no. <laughs> that, that is great. Yeah. But, you know, that's it is what it is, right? Um, yes.
0: So where do we focus now? Because you bridge both of those worlds. You've used the scans. You've Mm -hmm. built your own system. You're familiar with substance process. You know, so where do we focus? That's, I guess I'm I'm still driving to that. There's two things I got from what you said is one, have a vision for where, for really adding value to a company, like looking at Unreal and Brushify is is an example. You're diving in and you're doing something that you think is going to help people. So that's definitely going to drive attention to you. People are going to be offering jobs, or it's, you know, it's going to be much better than just, hey, here's my art station portfolio. Yeah. Um, so there's that, what else do we need to focus on? What can somebody who's maybe because you know, you've, you're also, you've been in this industry
1: for about a decade, I think you said no. I so mean, it's just, also that, that kind of problem that I think game engines have, which is that there are so many 3d artists out there, and they're mm-hmm. doing offline rendering. And yeah. then if you look at game engines, I think it's almost like this weird, like, everyone sees them as like an enigma. It's like, oh, it's real time. Oh, it's complicated. You know, and the problem is that they're right. It actually is stupidly complicated. And that's because stuff isn't set up for them. I was blown away by how it's like when you download Unreal, you know, they're you know, not to hate on Epic or anything, I think they do some great stuff, but like their some of their example stuff isn't always the best. They have some I think some interesting stuff like the Kite demo is great, but it is you know, not that much of it actually. And um that's something that's like it's a bit overwhelming to newcomers when they see the shader graph and they're like, well, how do I build my own materials? And then you kind of, you know, find a few different material tutorials online and it's like, oh, you mean I have to actually, like, I just want to render this chair. You know, <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want to have to be like a math genius, you know, just mm-hmm. to like plug some textures into this chair and have it render in, you know, with a roughness map or something. Set um, up your scalers, your multipliers, make sure you sRGB. And then you start looking into like, landscapes and terrains and it's like i want to build an auto material but i've got like all these different maps to root through and i've got like Mm -hmm. to worry about you know the slope and i've got to root the normal maps in i've got like to worry about you know how do i get the height maps through for tessellation it just gets ridiculous and i was like why isn't that out of the box just built in and then you you know dig deeper and you find that some of the functions built into the engine are just kind of like i mean i don't know what happened but it looks like complete spaghetti they didn't really spend too much time like commenting all of these, you know, built-in shaders and stuff, <laughs> you know, for things like power. Para- if you go and look, look at like Unreal Engine Parallax one, I mean, the official Parallax function, and it's like, I don't understand it, man. I have no idea what's going on there. It's just too complicated, and I could just imagine like if you were a newcomer, you know, the level of difficulty, the the curve. It's not a curve. It's a brick wall. <laughs> this is this is the problem that we face with with real time. So yeah finding ways to make it easier for people and doing that through example scenes tutorials very you know clear and concise and the the problem is as well there are tutorials out there the problem is that the quality bar for tutorials i think is really also pretty low in the industry Mm -hmm. you will usually get you know some guy and he's got a crappy microphone and it's a bit like and now you click on this and you click on that and it's just like you don't really you know it's it, it needs to get to the point i've been so just frustrated just by like you know i click you know, five minutes into the tutorial, oh, he's still not talking about the part that I need to know about where he actually clicks mm-hmm. the thing. I think that's something that needs to, you know, that I could kind of like help to raise the bar a little bit and uh build some more concise, sort of really clear tutorials with a lot of, you know, good presentation. And that's something that I think is super important. But, yeah. I think you did that with rebirth tutorial. That's probably one of the best tutorials I've seen on on this. The problem with that one though, is it spent I spent Way too long. So I think almost like I got to this obsession point where I kind of almost Uh built into like a documentary, you know. So I was like, uh yeah, probably can't hit that quality bar every single time because it's just the amount of editing that goes into it, the amount of work, you know. It's like you're seeing it 45 minutes, but it's like I'm condensing months of work into 45 minutes, and it's like, and I'm and because it's got to still be, you know, I can't go two hours, I can't go three hours. I've got to at some point cut it down make it something someone could watch in one sitting without, you know, having all of this pointless fluff that they get bored and they, you know, want to do something else. And you're switching the screen every it looks like almost every thirty seconds you're switching the screen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's it's like I'm, you know, crossfading and fading into different parts to show, you know, this is the shader, this is kind of what it does. A lot of the shader stuff that I'm showing in that stuff is the shaders that come with Brushify. We just basically tweaked them a little bit, you know, we mm-hmm. moved them around and uh Changed a lot of the settings and and uh, few, flipped a few nodes here and there. I love
0: this part of the conversation too because one of my friends, Majid, he just posted this Wolverine sculpt online and is rendered in Arnold. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, oh my god, this is like this is just so beautiful. <laughs> you know, what I'm I'm seeing so much beautiful work being done out of Arnold. And mm-hmm. then one of my students is is he was doing some X Gen, so he's, he was in Arnold, anyways. And uh, he posts this, and I'm like, "That's it. That's the skin." I didn't know, realize it was Arnold. I'm like, "Because we've been back and forth. How do you get the skin in marmoset for him?" Mm-hmm. That's the skin, and he's like, "Oh, that's Arnold." I'm like, "Oh my god." Okay. Oh, you thought it was unreal, or, <laughs> I, or no? I thought I was, I was hoping it was marmoset, you know, because we were ah, we've okay. been working for a while on him getting the specularity, right, or, you know, right, the roughness
1: right. or whatever, right? Because that's
0: what yeah. really makes
1: a difference. And that's the problem. It's like trying to get that stuff in real time. Ah, it's still not quite there yet. So, like with rebirth. I mean, to be honest, it's I think it was impressive, but at the same time, we picked our battles extremely well. You know, we went with this very evenly lit, very uh, you know we were rendering pretty much rocks and then a few bits of grass here and there. you know mm-hmm. it was and and you know difficult things were obviously like the background mountains, which need you know generation, and we used a sort of lidar combined with Houdini uh, to kind of generate those and look reasonably realistic. But for the most part, all of that stuff is, you don't have to worry too much about like the roughness of the SSS, you know, all that stuff that's complicated about rendering skin. We don't have to do any of that stuff. So yeah, we picked our battles very, very well for this one. And I think that that also helps a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So what do you think is the future of real time?
0: You know, since you're kind of at the edge pushing that, where do you think we're, we're getting there
1: where it's Arnold level quality? or Do you see that happening? I have absolutely no doubt that in the next five years, we're going to see some insanely mind blowing stuff. It's going to be beyond. Yeah. I think you, I don't think we can even imagine what we're going to see in even like three years, because mm-hmm. I think what happens every sort of GDC is, you know, a company like Quixel will kind of like throw the gauntlet down. Also, I guess you watched also the goodbye Kansas demo as well with the Elisha Vikanda with the like the, in the lake or next to the lake and stuff. It was, a, I think it was called the troll demo. But um, um, that one, I don't know. Goodbye, Kansas. It was like, goodbye, Kansas. Uh, troll. troll. Yeah, that's it. And this was the other demo that sort of came out at the same time as Rebirth at GDC. And was kind yeah. of, I think the two were really complementary to each other, you know, because it was like the stuff we did at Quixel was like this environment showcase. And then this was more like very, it's still got a great environment, of course, but like the characters is it's really the focus and everything. Yeah. And that's an, that's an Unreal. But yeah, I mean the skin is really good, but it's it's still not there yet. You know, it's still a bit like there's something wrong, <laughs> and you know yeah. it's it's that point where you can put like a hundred people on it and they all think they know what is wrong, and then they change it, and then it's like no, no it's not that. It's something else. <laughs> it's just yeah, it, it's very tricky because you can pause a frame and you can start thinking like oh well it's it's the. It's where the hair meets the, you know, it's where, it's where the hair is at the hairline. You know, it's too hard. Mm-hmm. It's too, like, mm-hmm. whatever. We need to soften that here. And then, then you soften it, and it's like, oh, and now she looks like she's going bold. It's like, I don't get it. It's like, this doesn't make sense. And then, and then or it's, no, it's her eyes. It must be the, you know, something with the, the wetness of the eyelids. Yeah, it's it, And it becomes like this completely bottomless pit, basically, to try to get a character to look real. Mm-hmm. But I do think that like every time a demo like this comes out, it's almost like a gauntlet being thrown down and everyone goes, Oh, wow. So that's possible. We've got to beat that next year. And, uh, you yeah, know, um,
0: there's a studio real where the president lives up here with where I'm in top of the world and, um, they're hiring 40 people by the end mm-hmm. of this year. And which, you know, we hear a lot about games and there's a lot of hiring, firing, and you know, some there's, there's all oh, stuff, yeah. but I mean, this studio, 40 people they're hiring by the end of the year. And um, one of the biggest jobs they need to fill right now is rendering. And when he said rendering, I was like, What? Mm. what do you mean by? Re-? I was like, What do you mean by rendering? Because usually that's what people say when it's like offline. You know, it's that's what I imagine Pixar to say. Yeah, we have a rendering department. And then he was explaining, you know, the the whole idea. Because ultimately, real time is really just it's you know there's deferred rendering elements inside real time and and all of that. And um, that's their next battleground you know Mm. is rendering and making things beautiful so maybe they heard the gauntlet yeah i mean and and
1: it makes total sense from a business standpoint because you have these movies that are basically you know churning out yeah trying to churn out blockbusters they're trying Mm -hmm. to do it cheaply they've got render times that are just too long you know they want to reduce their render times if they can do it real time even better if the tools to do things in real time become better and more you know it's just easier now to like import a rock into unreal and then You know, set up a nice camera and some nice lighting. and Wow, that looks like a photo. Wow, that looks like it could be from, you know, DSLR. Like, maybe I took that last week when I was in Iceland, right? It's like this this incredible new thing where it's like, wow, it's not even difficult anymore to render these shots in real time. And once it gets easier and easier and easier, and it's, you know, working in real time becomes just like putting stuff together in 3D Studio Max and hitting render with a V-Ray or Mental Ray or, you know, in, in Arnold. That once it becomes that level of, of quality with that much ease, it will happen for sure. And just because it's a, money is a driving factor and, and time or yeah. time-saving, time is money, right. you know. So it's a time-saving method. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, the
0: execs I, I was talking to, it's like sometimes these games, it's $300 million to make a game.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know? that's also the thing. is reducing costs of video game development. That's also just, I mean... Thinking about the amount of time that people spend just building their own shaders in Unreal. So one of the first projects, like after I left Crytek, I was like two years ago, or a year and a half ago or so, I worked on an MMO for a bit, which was, it's called Outlaws of the Old West. And it was basically like a very kind of, it was like a survival MMO. And they had this kind of infrastructure. Well, I kind of was brought into the team, and they'd been working on it for six months or so already. And to be honest, they just hadn't really made much progress because when it came to actually like, Doing the environment they didn't really have any sort of shaders in in place you know it was like they needed to build all that stuff from scratch and you know that's before i had brushify before i built all that stuff so it was really just like i was looking at all of the different stuff on unreal marketplace and i was like i can't use that you know maybe i can take a bit of that and kind of move that but it's like well in the end you know i had to just build it all from scratch myself because it was just like there's no way yeah there was just no way we could use what was already in there and um that was pretty much like my realization that's like wow there's a bit of a niche here to build mm. something standard that makes and, sense uh, it had to all get thrown a, out huh so that's you know weeks yeah. away. i spent about as i say four or five hundred dollars on all of the different maybe even like two thousand i think I, I i think i spent like i bought every single landscape order material on the marketplace when i was trying to do that project and mm-hmm. i was like i just couldn't find one that did that was Optimized that looked good that like did all of these things that I wanted it to do for this MMO game, you know. And I was just like, wow, I can't believe this doesn't exist. How come no one's built this? And it's like, I mean, back then I wasn't such an expert with Shader Graph, so it was a bit like, uh, you know, I couldn't just go and I'll just quit this job and do it myself. You know, I wasn't really in that <laughs> mindset. Yeah, you know? it was like, you know, during the development of the game when I was re- like constantly realizing like we're running into wall after wall trying to use these landscape order materials that just aren't really game ready they're not development ready and that's the thing is every single mmo team working on unreal engine 4 every single open world game every single like first person shooter rpg and this is the thing if you look at the steam top 100 charts how many of those are unreal engine 4 games this is a lot of games companies a lot of indie developers out there that are basically running up against the same wall which is you know they they don't know how to get their their infrastructure together their shaders their their assets, you know, how to import assets like a proper pipeline for Unreal Engine 4 that's going to work and that's going to give them 60 FPS, 100 FPS in the end. Because mm-hmm. it's hard. It's just really difficult. So making it easy is crucial.
0: You know, I think the great thing in what I'm hearing, because if, if we kind of circle around it to one of the questions that started this was, you know, what does somebody need to focus on? And what I hear from you is a big part of you is just having a
1: mission and yep. being really helpful. Does that resonate with you Like in how yeah, you see I mean, yourself? It- I guess it's a bit like the yeah I mean I don't know about whether I quote Jeff Bezos or not but I'm pretty sure he said something about this like uh you know where you where you try and basically have yeah you become like a what is it something, something like, become a missionary not a mercenary something like that right mm. kind of thing he would say but mm-hmm. um <laughs> something like where you go on a mission and then it's like because you have a mission and you approach capitalism from that direction rather than thinking like either I just want to take my money and and I'm always at the bottom and everything everyone hates me and I have to pay my taxes and it's horrible if you if you get lost in that mindset it's a bit like yeah you can see okay I'm only looking at the negative aspects of capitalism or the monetary system right Mm -hmm. but there is there are positive aspects and I think very few people sort of like actually talk about those and actually embrace them and I think that's kind of the thing of where I came from is I, I don't really have a choice you know I had to kind of just embrace it because this is it. You know, at a certain point I was a kind of idealistic kid thinking like, wouldn't be great to change this system because it's, it sucks. And I'm an artist and I just want to do my art stuff. And I don't want anything to do with these business people, those stupid men in suits, you know, but I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized like, if you can't beat them, you've got to join them. And then you've got to kind of do it in a way that's not detrimental to other people in the world. Right. You've got to do it in a way that's going to help people. And that was the, the interesting kind of revelation I had when I was maybe it took me a while because I don't know if I'm a bit slow or whatever. I think some like eighteen-year-olds just get it straight away and they're like, "I'm gonna be an entrepreneur," and then they just do it. You know, it took me until I was like twenty-five before I was like just completely realizing that this is, you know, having a different approach to capitalism is a better way of kind of organizing my life, you know, and seeing the good that it can do. Because that's that's I think the biggest misunderstanding is that if you help somebody else in a monetary system. You will get rewarded. It will happen eventually. Uh, it's sort of like there is a sort of karma there. There is a sort of like bounce back. And that's the, also the thing that it's like in order to survive in the capitalist system is uh, I need to help somebody else. Otherwise, I will die. I'll literally starve, right? As an artist, I, you know, I can't just be here like making whatever I want. I need to make something that's useful to, or valuable to somebody else. And then I'm going to find a way to somehow bring the value back to myself. But it's the first step that needs to take place first. I love that that's great. I think that's going to live with me for a while. That idea of the missionary versus
0: mercenary both are achieving some goal, but when you think i mean missionaries, there's a defense element there's a mercenary element to missionaries there's but they have a goal they have a mission that they're accomplishing it's in the it's
1: for a specific good yeah, that's quite for sure there's all all kinds of these like little mantras right you you see them all the time on linkedin but Mm -hmm. they all have like a you know kind of like a, a ring of truth about them you know it's like and i think it boils down to this thing of like if you want to be a knight act like a knight right if you want to be somebody that goes out and does something and does it well and then brings that value or that discovery back to the masses then just try and go ahead and do that thing right and whether that's you know whatever whatever field you're in right if you're in Ice skating, you know, and become a great ice skater. And then you go and teach ice skating and then you, you're bringing it back to the community. But it's the, pretty much the same thing with 3D, right? It's that you do it enough for a long time. And then you think to yourself, okay, I would like to build some kind of infrastructure, some kind of tutorials, some kind of way of, of providing some value back to people. And it kind of goes back in full circle. And then I'm, I'm think- thinking it's like, well, it's like, yeah, it's kind of like this example of the monomyth, right? Like the, the archetypical story where somebody goes, you know, becomes a hero, brings back to the community, you know, and um, I think that's what life is, right? It's like this circle of just going off and doing the same hero's journey again and again and again. Maybe I'm really into environment art right now. But maybe in like five, 10 years, I'll find myself a different passion. And I'll decide to do that instead. Because why not start a new adventure? Totally. I love that. That's great. Was it scary when you started Brushify or were you working like when you made that entrepreneur step? Uh, yeah, I guess that all of them were uh, a bit scary, but that was pretty, I was very settled at Crytek. I mm-hmm. had got very knowledgeable with the, cry, the cry engine, very comfortable with the CryEngine. And I had thought to myself, you know, just like there was a, a nagging sort of feeling in the back of my head that was like, do I have transferable skills? And I was always thinking to myself like, oh, God, what if I don't? what if I only can work at Crytek forever? You know, and and I was almost there for like, I was there for like nine, nine years or eight years, you know, almost nine years. And yeah, just absolutely still didn't believe in myself to this point that I had some transferable skills that could move to another engine or could move to uh, Mm -hmm. offline rendering or anything like that. So I I guess this last couple of years has been just kind of proving to myself that, yes, I have some skills. They can work in not just CryEngine, not just one company. There, they can be used, you know, by everybody in the industry and, and kind of utilized. So, I think that was it's been really good to have like that kind of recognition and stuff. That's been a That's great, great feeling. Yeah, but it was scary. Oh yeah. <sighs> well, and also it was my first time freelancing as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, doing your taxes and your in like, and in, you know, and your health insurance and just all of the bureaucracy. Germany's just crazy, you know. Oh man, I've heard Stop. specifically. Germany. they don't stop with the bureaucracy it's like every five days i'm gonna like do something new with signing something or like you know wow. sign it five times and then send it off to like carry a pigeon to the <laughs> tax office and <laughs> i don't know they they haven't also they haven't invented like email in germany that doesn't exist so everything has to be done by like like you have to send like a rodent with like attached to its leg or something <laughs> <Lovely>. it's ridiculous <laughs>
0: All right. Is the environment art career path jobs? I mean, is this something where in Europe that you see demand, it's it's still
1: picking up, things are still going well? Absolutely. I mean, to be honest, in the last couple of years, the amount of times that I've had people say, Can you recommend an environment artist in Unreal Engine four? And Mm -hmm. then I've had to tell them like, uh, I mean, if you want a guy that can build a whole world for like an MMO or whatever, or like build a whole level. The amount of people that can actually do that, I could say maybe there are like five or six of them in the whole world that I even know about, and most of them are already hired. So I would say if you can master the skills, you're immediately going to be whipped up by a AAA games company immediately, even if you're not super good or something. If you just have some cool open world examples, you know, if you would take a shot from The Witcher, which would be like a landscape shot, and try and recreate it, in Unreal and you know even just using stuff on the marketplace like you go download brushify you know you take you take some of the assets you rearrange them you put some map background mountains there you I've got the road system, you know, you you make a few roads and then uh, that's it, right? You're basically already on your way to building something that already looks like the witcher and mm-hmm. uh What's mind-blowing is that like I think when you do get to that level that It will be very, very soon that people will start to get in touch with you and say like, hey, can you build me this map for this game? Because I, I just desperately need a level designer or an environment artist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely viable, especially for open world stuff. There's just so much demand. That's awesome. That's really great to hear, too.
0: All right, Joe, man, again, thank you so much. I really enjoyed meeting you and thanks for sharing your, your insights and for having a conversation. No, no problem, dude. Great talking with you. Thanks
1: for having me.
0: All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now. So I look forward to hearing from you soon.